You're listening to the Screaming Pods Network. Perfecto. All right, man. So yeah, I usually just uh, I usually just kind of ease into it, um, kind of conversationally, and see where it goes. I used to, I used to like you know, plan out questions and stuff like that, but I got to the point to where I, I just kind of prefer to have a conversation. If that works with you... That works with me. Cool. So we got Jason Stellman of the Drunk Ex-Pastors and Misfit Faith podcasts, and uh, of course your book, Misfit Faith, also uh, came out semi-recently. Yeah, that came out last March, I believe. Last March, yeah. As in a year ago, yeah. Yeah, I got that for... Uh, my little brother for um, for Christmas actually. I thought it, it'd be something because I know it's, it's it's digestible and um, you know a, a affirming of faith, but in a, yeah to coin or to to use the, the phrase you coined it from a misfit sort of a, a mindset, I guess. So yeah, it didn't it didn't start out that way. You know, it started out to, and you know my intention when I began writing it and the actual proposal I submitted to my publisher was to kind of write a book defending my having left my Presbyterian ministry and becoming Catholic. Mm, yeah. But And I actually wrote that book and submitted that book, but by the time it was done, I hated it. And I asked my publisher if I could sort of start over because it sort of... I don't know. I, I found myself in my first few years as a Catholic kind of really undergoing a pretty significant sort of existential change within within myself and one of the things that that sort of um did to me was make me not care at all anymore about defending stuff and convincing people of things right yeah i I know you talk a lot about um being an apologist and then when you first uh, converted to catholicism still kind of having that apologist um mindset and, 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 and am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, you know, I, I – and part of it was just because I was a somewhat public person as a pastor right. in the Presbyterian church, I had a million people yelling at me when, mm. I, when I quit, you know? So it was like, yeah. oh, shit, I have to um, answer all these people's questions. And, and then it yeah. sort of occurred to me, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't have to answer anything mm. if I don't want to. So, That's great. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I sort of – walked away from um, theological uh, fighting, I suppose. Yes, yes. So you mentioned, uh, something stood out to me is you, you mentioned having that existential, um, I don't know if it was a crisis or not, but that, that existential experience uh, after converting to Catholicism where I would, you know, I would maybe suspect that it might be more common to have such a change of heart or have such a change of perspective and then in reaction uh, change change your faith or how you, how you identify with your faith and stuff like that. So what led up, if it wasn't such an existential crisis that led to your conversion to Catholicism, what, what was that catalyst that brought you there initially? Well, I was operating at the time still in a very sort of, um, I suppose, theologically conservative space in that, you know, the big questions for me centered around authority um, you know, what, where is the, is the church visible? Where is it? Um, who gets to say, thus saith the Lord, you know, what, what's to stop me as a Protestant from just deciding to rewrite the Nicene Creed? All these kinds of things were big questions yeah. for me at the time, you know, and, and Catholicism answers them. I, and I honestly still think that Catholicism, 
um, is the one place where you can find answers to those questions. Although I don't necessarily think those questions are the most important questions anymore. But if a person okay. does think that, then Catholicism certainly has answers that, that I couldn't find anywhere else. Mm. Do you mean as far as – can you clarify a little bit when, when you talk about the Nicene Creed and things like that? Is it um, the where they place their authority in the Catholic Church and, or is it like the, the you know the – the popehood, the papacy kind of being handed down through Peter, like what exactly do you mean by by how they answer those questions or how they approach those Yeah, questions? well, you know, I was a pretty um, hardcore old school Presbyterian, you know, and so yeah. I care I cared a lot about, you know, doctrine and authority and all of that. And what it, what kind of was really bothering me for about 4 years from 2008 to 2012 was the fact that um as much as I wanted to talk about authority, for example, the authority of um, the Nicene Creed and its doctrine of the mm. Trinity and the deity of Christ, it was only I only I only invested those ideas and that document with authority because it came to conclusions I agreed with already. And uh, what yeah. what sort of started to occur to me over time was that when you come to your own interpretation of the Bible and then go search for a church that agrees with you and then turn around and call that church authoritative, it's mm. sort of it's sort of kind of bullshit, you know? Yeah, kind of reverse engineering yeah, the, that authority. Yeah, it's, authorita- it's authoritative because it agrees with me, but the minute my church um, stops agreeing with me, I can leave and find another one or start my own. <laughs> and yeah. the, kind of coming to those conclusions and realizing that my entire, like, idea of what how the church functions was kind of built on sand was a pretty big mm. like kick in the nuts you know <laughs> yeah right right I, I know um you're you're a bit of an, an anglophile and and you you appreciate the the long tradition of catholicism and that for me hearing you talk about it like that on dxp kind of got me thinking well you know with age comes wisdom and the Catholic Church is an awful lot older, and yeah, of course they've had fuck-ups and mistakes, you know, uh, to, to kind of chase that age metaphor down. As a teenager, you do some stupid shit. As a little kid, you don't even know better, and, and you, you know, run out into the street without even realizing what you're doing. Um, and, and the fact that the Catholic Church has been around so long means it's, it's had so much time to mature and to learn from its mistakes. And I, lo- I know Protestants love, uh, evangelicals in particular, love pointing fingers at the Catholic Church saying, you know, what about the Crusades? What about this and that? But where the Catholic Church is at now, I think they've come to a, a mature adulthood, as it were, as a religion, uh, you know, as opposed to Protestantism and, you know, I, I really try not to hate on evangelicals, even though I have a lot of baggage around uh, around that culture, but um, whereas evangelicals, I'd say, are, are, are still maybe tweens, you know, like preteens or something, Um and does does the tradition and and the the history and and the uh, does, does all of that factor into your appreciation of Catholicism? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I I'm not going to lie and say that um, there's not a massive subjectivity component here. I mean, I just like. I mean, mm. part of it is I like gargoyles and stained glass and statues and incense. You know, I like that stuff. Um, yeah, sure. Of, of course, course. I mean, I liked that stuff my whole life and didn't become a Catholic, you know, until uh, five years ago or so. So it, I didn't become a Catholic because of that stuff. But there is an appeal 
to the sort of you know the memory of it all, the the, the longevity, the tradition. Um, certainly, yes, the tradition. You know, that's a good one for you. And like you said, um, I found that there was something disingenuous about evangelicalism's idea about sort of you know when you're. When you're not a visible church, when you are just a collection of the elect or a collection of um, all the believers throughout time, but you don't have a, like a P.O. box or an address or a, you're, not, you're not visible, <laughs> then you have this like plausible deniability where you can say, oh, yeah, um, the, the Nicene Creed and, and, and all that, that was us. We did that. But the Crusades, that was the mm. Catholics. Right. Um, whereas right. Okay, if yeah. you're if you're an actual visible church with a sacramental succession, you know, where you can actually find where where are the people who speak for for God there? There's a you, you know, you have to sort of cop to the, the, the stuff you did. You know, you have to say like, yeah, yes. the Inquisition, like we did that. We that was that yeah. was stupid. Mm-hmm. But that was us. You know, we can't hide from our history. Yeah. But when you're disembodied and invisible, then you can easily just like pop into history and take credit for the good stuff and pass yes. off the blame to other people. You know, that's really good, man. That's really good. Uh, so speaking of uh, the Nicene Creed and um, you know, I guess maybe more specifically like the Apocrypha and things like that. Um, Where I, I know that uh, your reading of Scripture and maybe. Excuse me. Maybe even how you define the term "scripture" has shifted significantly from uh, your your evangelical days. Uh, but do you do you think scripture is God breathed? Is it divinely inspired? And of course, that begs the question: Well, then, then did God whisper in somebody's ear, "Hey, th- th- these are the right books"? And but then, you know, the apocrypha is, is in a gray area, or or, or, or you know, how, how do you? I guess. In a roundabout way, I'm trying to ask: How do you approach scripture? Is it is it useful mythology? Is it a bunch of parables that the historicity of doesn't necessarily even matter? Or what? It, what is it to you? What is scripture to you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I've read a bit of Pete Enns's work over the last mm, yeah. few years. Um, oh, yeah. And Derek Flood wrote a really great book called Disarming Scripture. I interviewed him on oh, this. Dude, Faith. yes. Disarming. You interviewed him? Yeah, I interviewed him on Misfit Faith. I missed that one. I gotta listen to that. Yeah. Jay Baker. You know, I, I go to his church uh, and work there, and um, he did like a whole series, like a three week series on disarming scripture. And he would like, as much as he would read from the Bible, he would read from from disarming scripture, and it, yeah. was, it was beautiful. But yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. Keep, yeah, keep me, well, I mean, I the way I put it is is like this. You know, of course. Scripture is complex and filled with various genres. You can't read it. You can't have like one approach, like the literal approach is correct, you know, or the metaphorical approach is correct. Mm. I mean, I think you have to take each kind of passage and book, you know, on its own terms, you know, and read it in the light of the kind of like what it's trying to do, you know. Um, But the way I look at it is that. If I'm going to live my life the way I already know I'm supposed to live it, you know, if I'm going to live a life that's characterized by love of the other, uh, yeah. hope, the fruit of the spirit, these kinds of things, yes. um, it, whether or not certain things in the Bible are historically, you know, verifiable or, or literal – It plays no um, role whatsoever in how I'm going to live. I'm going to live the same no matter what. Oh, my God. 
Dude, you're taking the words out of my mouth. I, I swear to God. That's exactly how I see it. And what, what started my own... I know that... I don't want to get too much into my story, but but I, I just have... I feel like I have to kind of uh, echo what you're saying. What started my deconstruction, deconversion, you know, embracing doubt process was realizing what the fuck difference does it make whether or not Jesus was a real dude? Like, how does that affect my day-to-day life, how I love people, the lessons that I take from these stories? You know, how does that... And and at the time, I was in a covenant church. I was working as a sound man in a covenant church, and I was very involved there. And everyone around me was just like, was very upset by this idea. But I was just like, how... So we find out that that this history, maybe he was real, but like all the stories weren't exactly, you know, 100% factually recorded. But like, how does that affect the lesson that I take from the archetype of Christ, which I think is the archetype of love, of perfect, inclusive love? Does that make any sense? I guess if if sanctification theory and and things like that and and the idea of of, of Christ paying the price and and historically um, reconciling us with the Father, if if that's something that you buy into, which I, I personally don't, but it's fine if you do, then I could see how, yeah, the historicity of Jesus is a big issue. But I approach it as... Uh Mythology, maybe in, in the way that, that Pete Rollins and, and, and Caputo define the term mythology, you know, it could be real, it could not be real, but the point is, what lesson do I take from this? Well, I, I want to love my neighbor, I want to, to treat others as I want to be treated, I want to, I want to feed the hungry because they could well be, you know, literally or figuratively, they could well be Christ, as we, as we see in Matthew 25, you know? Yeah, yeah, and it's funny, I was talking to... Um, I do some uh, spiritual mentoring for people, and I was talking yeah, to one sure. of my mentoring clients about this. Uh, she's a new client of mine, and you know, I was saying, you know, imagine if you live to be eighty years old and then you die, but you're but you're visited by an angel, um, you know, one day before your ultimate death, and the angel says mm. to you, "Hey, just so you know, um, all of the Bible stories are myth- mythical and figurative and metaphorical, not literal." Yeah. Um, are you going to look at the angel and be like, crap, I could have been like murdering people all this time <laughs> and hurting people uh. and, and stealing and lying, but I wasted my life being, um, uh, uh, you know, loving and, and I wasted my life pouring mm. myself out in self-emptying, self-sacrificial love for the stranger. When I could have, if I had known there was not a real heaven, I could have been just like uh, kidnapping kids and, and, <laughs> and, and murdering them in my garage, you know? Yeah. It's just silly. I, I think that we're yes. going to – I mean the, the point uh, – you know, you read Romans 6, you know, and it's like Paul's whole thing is um, Christ has died. You have died with him. Christ is risen again, and so you ought to walk in newness of life. Whether mm. whether his resurrection was something that you could have captured on film if there were a camera crew in the garden, yeah. you know, on Easter morning yeah. or not, <laughs> it makes no difference to the way we're going to live. Now, I hope yes. that it's, you know, I hope for a more maximalist, you know, uh, you know, uh, answer, and I, I would love it if all of it were literally true. Um, yeah. But it's we'll find out, I guess. You know, if you close your eyes yeah. in death and don't open them again, then that's that's that. You know. Uh, mm. If you close your eyes in death and open them again in the presence of God, um, you know, surrounded by the holy angels and all that, then even better. That's awesome, too. Mm. But either way, I did my best to love the stranger and not not to hurt people, you know. That, oh, yeah, that's beautiful, man. That's beautiful. Like I mentioned, I, I recently um, – my, my past, my most recent interview that I did was with Joey Svensson. Do you know him from Bad Christian Podcast? Yeah, I was on their show a couple times, yeah. 
Okay, okay, cool, yeah. So, yeah, I interviewed him, and I, dude, I, I swear to God, I asked him that exact same question. I said, and I didn't say an angel, I said, what if God came to you and said, all this stuff that in the Bible is super important, but it was not literal? Like, how would that affect your daily life? It, it was revelatory to me to think that there are some people who, the, the yeah, I guess, the historicity of it, is essential because to me it's I don't fucking care whether or not that should happen I, I do care about the morals it's my culture you know I had I been raised Buddhist yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'd probably have a, similar sentiments towards the teachings and the stories of the Buddha but it's my culture and my heritage and I learn a lot from it and I love it but the the, the idea of being historical or poetic or symbolic or metaphorical really just does not affect me walking around at interacting with other human beings. I think for a lot of people, um, it, a, a lot of it comes down to future judgment and the afterlife. Yes. And, you know, a lot of people need, yeah. they need to be threatened into sanctification, uh, yeah. you know, upon, upon penalty of hell and, and, and eternal torture. Yeah. So you take that component away and they, they cease to see the point. But if that if that's where a person is, then I would suggest that maybe you have bigger issues than than anything else. You know, it, right? The only reason you're doing this all and living this way is to escape hell. Then I would suggest that maybe your motives are not right. You know, dude, a, a fucking man, totally nail on the head. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that that too uh, comes back to the idea. Like, you made reference to. Um, the idea of like, oh, if, if it turns out that it was all in vain and that this these stories were not literal, then you could have been raping and, and you've been a pirate pillaging and, pl- and plundering, <laughs> whatever, whatever. But like, it, and that's, and I, again, I hate, I'm not trying to hate on these people because I used to think like this myself, but I have Calvinist friends who use that argument. I, I'm, I identify currently as a non-theist um, you know, which means I don't, I don't think it, it matters if there's a God. I don't know. You know, I'm agnostic, I suppose. I'm a little bit atheist, but I, I, I'm more non-theist because I don't, I, I don't know if there's a personal God. I believe in an energy. I, 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 I believe I get fulfillment out of reading scripture whenever I substitute the word God for the word love with a capital L. The force, the life force of love, the balancing, equalizing force that 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 pulls you know negatively and positively charged particles together that that which holds us and sustains us physically and emotionally you know and spiritually but um but yeah when, when a calvinist says to me well, well well if there's no god then what's stopping me from raping my neighbor's wife it's like man there's something else going on here like there are humanists who and members you know of the satanic temple and and, and other humanist offshoots who are all about loving other people and have no concern for or have rejected the notion of the existence of God. And so I just feel, yeah, I agree. There has to be something else going on there if you're if that's where your mind goes. Oh, there's no God? Like, oh, Dad's not home? That means I can go fuck the dog up the ass. Like, what are you, <laughs> who said, what are you talking about? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that's sorry. Uh, I just was not. I was not expecting you to go there. I I, I go. Yeah, I go places. <laughs> but yeah, no. I, uh, 
how do I get back on track? Uh, I agree with you that uh, if there, yeah, if that's your mindset, there's something else going on there. I think. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, totally. So, uh, so what what direction do you see uh, DXP going in? Like, I I love how you and Christian are just like documenting in real time your uh, your your transformations of worldviews. Um, I, I love how you like the whole. For me, it was like a, almost like a season of a syndicated TV show when you guys were were having the debate about woman versus girl terminology. Right. Yeah, you know, like you you have these little and then and then you guys come out of it changed. You come out of it with with more solidly formed opinions. Even if your opinion didn't change, you have more reason to believe what you believe or, or to assert what you assert. Um, and I, I know that recently you've been kind of flirting with the idea of universalism. Where are you at with that in particular right now and the afterlife in general? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I in some ways, universalism itself, the term presupposes a belief in some sort of eternal destiny. Yes. And so yeah. when someone says I'm a universalist, it, it, it often means – that I think that everyone will be saved, you know, or everyone will go saved. to heaven and, and live up yeah. in heaven forever. Right. Um, and I'm not sure if the term has a whole lot of like force or significance outside of that kind of par- paradigm, you know? Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, part of me wants to say that the, the, these kinds of questions are above my pay grade. You know, I don't know the answers. <laughs> um, and part of me is very attracted to the idea of a very this worldly Christianity. Oh man! You know, me and, and you start if you look at the incarnation and, and the pattern of incarnation, and you look at the self-emptying of Christ that Paul talks about in Philippians two, and then you look yeah. at the idea of the Spirit of God being poured out upon all flesh, which mm. Peter quotes yeah. Joel in Acts two about yeah. the day of Pentecost. And, you know, there's something attractive about the idea that God is here and, yes. and, and, and he's not, you know, it's not about getting people up to heaven, but yeah, it's about totally. getting everyone out, you know, um, mm. you know, mm. and so it, when you, the more I sort of focus my thoughts, you know, on, on that kind of mentality, the less I think about universalism because universalism presupposes at least the way i understand it it presupposes yeah. an afterlife yes that yeah. that's sort of supposed to be our focus you know like look up you know look away from yeah. this earth and are you saved are you not saved who have you who have you uh, led to christ recently did you save anybody are your friends saved you know it's this whole it's a very evangelical way of, of thinking about um, approaching the afterlife and and how to go about living on Earth. I think. Yeah, yeah, and I, I so I've, I kind of don't think. I mean, in my book, I, I you know, I definitely, um, I don't know if I espouse universalism. Not, certainly not by that title, but I, I definitely challenge very, very strongly the idea that God would, you know, withhold the ability to believe in Him from people and then torture them for it for all eternity. I, I certainly yes. say that's not consistent with fatherhood of any kind, certainly not divine fatherhood, right? Heavenly oh, fatherhood. God, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great take. That's beautiful. Could you um, could you explain to me, um, 
treat me like an ignorant child, which I'm probably just about two degrees removed from. So you could, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty much that. But uh, could you explain to me the concept of grace of GPN of grace perfects nature? Because I do have Catholic friends, and every one of them I brought this concept up with don't even know what the fuck I'm talking about. Like, don't even feel like, grace perfects nature, what are you talking about? But um, I, I, I feel like maybe, I'm not a huge N.T. Wright fan. I do like a lot of what he says. I do appreciate him. But I feel like he's the closest, um, you know, Anglican slash Catholic. Is he? I'm not, I don't know what he is. But um, but the closest, you know, in in that sort of camp of, of non-Protestant, uh, more ancient uh, Christian traditions that kind of gets close to the idea of grace perfects nature, and I think for him it's it's a it's it's a very material thing, and I'm very attracted to materialism and humanism. Um, could you give me your take on exactly? Can you give me a breakdown on the idea of grace perfecting nature? Yeah, and I would I would recommend G.K. Chesterton as mm. probably the most kind of vocal proponent of the idea throughout his his writings. Um, Great. But the idea of grace perfects nature uh, it stems from the incarnation, and it's. I remember hearing when I was studying and, and wrestling with the whole Catholic question. I remember hearing somebody say, "All errors are Christological errors," and I didn't know mm. why they said that, but I thought that sounds really interesting, and I want to understand what that means. Um, yeah. But I, I didn't. I didn't understand it at the time, and so I started really kind of thinking about it, and it really, it oh. really. All errors are Christological errors. Yeah, okay. ultimately all errors are, are Christological errors. And okay. so the whole grace perfects nature thing is springs from that because what it's saying is sort of in evangelicalism, uh, certain factions of it, certainly fundamentalism, you have this idea that spiritual heavenly stuff is at war with earthly stuff, material right. stuff, right? And so you'll hear yeah. – and, and that manifests itself – no one ever says that. No one ever says my major premise is heaven is at war with earth and divinity is at war with humanity. Yeah. They, they never say the major premise, but the minor premise is always something like you can't trust um, psychology. You can't trust yeah. secular counselors. Secular, you can't, yes, yes. You can't trust the scientists, what they say. Cause, uh, but all of those sort of mistrustful, suspicious postures that they yeah. strike are all stemming from the presupposition that they never state yes. – just assume that right. that you can't really um, trust the world because yeah. divinity and it's humanity fallen. are at odds with one another, fallen. right? Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. So you know, divinity and humanity, heaven, earth, um, all these kinds of things are at war. Grace and nature, right? Grace being the spiritual, heavenly stuff; nature being the earthly, physical stuff. That uh, these okay. things are at war with one another. But then the reason that's a Christological error is because of the incarnation, right? Because mm. in the person of Christ, according to the story, you have a perfect hypostatic union of divinity and humanity yeah. in which there, one of them is not at war with the other. So in the case of Christ, it's not as though uh, divinity co-opted a human, you know, that, that there was a human walking around Nazareth and he somehow like got bitten by a zombie bug and, and was commandeered <laughs> and walked around in a trance doing a bunch of heaven stuff, a bunch of like, you know, spiritual stuff for three years until he was, you know, cured of the, of the virus or whatever. But instead, you know, that's, that would be an example of like grace swallowing nature, grace eclipsing nature, destroying mm. nature. 
But instead, grace perfects nature in the person of Christ. He lives, dies, rises, and ascends in his human body with his human nature, according to the story. Mm. Yeah. And so, therefore, the relationship of heaven to earth is not one of warfare or, you know, you become a Christian and everything you've previously known about the world is wrong. You have to wipe mm. your hard drive clean and get a whole new operating system installed. But instead, yeah, right. um, grace in the in the actual person of Christ, he is raised in his glorified humanity and ascends into heaven in his glorified humanity. Um, you know, mm. if you take the orthodox understanding of it all, you know, seriously, then that's that's what the story says. And so, therefore, our humanity, the things that make us human, the the things we can glean from the physical world, like through science or through observation or whatever. All these things are not just sort of threats to our spirituality or threats to our Christianity. If, if we have a proper understanding of Christ, we should look at grace as sort of putting an exclamation point after all true human ideas. If you have a proper understanding of Christ and how his divinity and humanity perfectly united in one person, then you don't have to look at science or, or, or psychology or university or all these kind of worldly pursuits mm. that the evangelical and fundamentalist people are so afraid of. You don't have to be afraid of any of that anymore because... Right. Heaven's not the job of heaven is or grace is not to just you know say you're wrong about everything to to nature or to earth, but instead it it raises you know it raises uh, humanity up in the same way that you know in Christ's human nature has been glorified you know and and yeah so that's kind of my take on the grace you know perfecting nature idea. Oh, that's beautiful, man. I love that. I love that, and it's I feel like. And maybe this is just my perspective and, and my bias, but it seems affirming of the material and affirming of the human. And um, it's not like oh, we humans need to strive to achieve this this perfect, you know, uh, spiritual state in which in which we no longer sin and in, in which we are. We are, you know, little Christs running around, um, glowing with halos over our heads. It, it affirms the fact that we are being worked upon within these dirty, grimy, fallen means of uh, of humanity, of Earth, of you know. I don't. That, that's my take. And I, yeah, I, I, I yeah. Find that- and even G.K. Chesterton said, you know, when people would would sort of challenge him, you know, as a Catholic, because of the fact that you know, well, all the Catholic feasts and festivals are just um, co-opted, you know, pagan festivals, that the Catholic Church sort of took all these mm-hmm, pagan festivals mm-hmm. and, you know, um, Christianized them, and, and yes. as though that were some sort of, like, bad thing. And Chesterton's response was always like, well, no shit, of course. Of course they did, <laughs> because grace perfects nature, right? M- mankind oh, was human gorgeous. before he was Christian. And so, therefore, there's nothing wrong with, um, you know, if Catholicism goes to a new area and sees all these different kinds of, you know, pagan rituals and pagan sort of instinctive, you know, ways of operating that if grace perfects nature, then the job of Catholicism is not to say, you're wrong about everything, let's start over, but to say, yeah, yeah, all these instincts you have are very human and humanity is good because Christ is human, right? Oh, that's gorgeous, man. I love that. It's like when Paul goes to Athens, you know, in Acts 17, and he sees all these, you know, altars and the altar to the unknown God and all these different kinds of statues and idols everywhere. 
And he, yes. he begins there and just builds upon it. He doesn't say, You're, all these things are wrong, let's smash these and then we'll talk. Yeah, he doesn't tear them down. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because, because, but that's because Jesus' divinity didn't tear down his humanity or apologize for his humanity. Oh, God. That, that's beautiful, man. I love that. Oh, that's great. Um, you, you mentioned the divinity of Christ and kind of alluded to um, you know, him, him not <laughs> being bitten by a spider or not being you know, possessed or whatever. But um, I, I'm, I'm not challenging your question. I just want to, want to clarify a little bit more. Um, like I, I recently preached a sermon on how I find it interesting that in Luke – um, the you know the dove descends upon Christ upon his baptism, and the presupposition for baptism is the forgiveness of of human sins, of fleshly sins. And of course, Protestants always say, "Oh, he was just giving us an example," but that's nowhere to be found in Scripture. So I find it interesting that the dove did not ascend upon Christ, descend upon Christ upon his birth in the manger, but rather after he had gone through a ritual which was, um, you know, which was uh, predicated upon the forgiveness of sins. So that kind of maybe gives you a little bit of a hint into where where I might uh, have my own interpretation and reading of the story of the character of Christ. But I'm curious, as for you, who is Christ God? Is Christ the Son of God? Is Christ God's representative in the in the story in this framework? What what who is Christ? Yeah. Uh, wow. Okay. <clears throat> um, Sorry if I'm getting too deep on you. <laughs> no, it's all good. Um, I mean, of course, that's the big you know million dollar question right there. Um, yeah. Right. I, I definitely yeah. <laughs> think that from the standpoint of the New Testament, Christ is God. Um, whether he was or not is another question, but I do think that the, they were right, the, the intent of the of the writers of the New Testament w- were was to sort of uh, argue for the, him being a God man, you know. Yeah, but what about the Son of Man versus you know the Son of God? The, he's never explicitly called Yahweh, which was his religion's term for God. You know, he, he prayed to his father, he prayed to his Abba. You know, your daddy isn't the same flesh and blood as you. Uh, you know, obviously you're, you're a part of him, you're broken off from him, uh, off of his, his little sperms, you know. But but uh, but I'm just curious, I, I to me I just don't see, in, even in the New Testament and in, you know, Paul's letters and things like that, uh, I, I know, you know, that, that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God in John, but... The word was with God. There seems to be a distinction there, and maybe we're bleeding into more of a Trinitarian question here. But, uh, but so, so, so you think your reading of the New Testament is that Jesus is the Creator, the Father, God? Not that He's the Father, but that He's the Son, um, and that He is God. At least that's what I think the New Testament is saying. For me, I, I sometimes I you know, I go back and forth sometimes when it comes to these kinds of questions, or like take questions of um, like Christianity and homosexuality, right? Yeah, um, sure. a, lo- a lot of people will try to answer that question by trying to show that no, 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 the Bible doesn't, you know, the Bible doesn't condemn um, this this kind of thing at all. Whereas another yeah. way to go 
um, would be, and this may be more along the lines of Derek Flood, is to say, yeah, yeah, the Bible does condemn certain things, not just that, but all kinds of other things. But, um, but that doesn't mean I that doesn't mean it's wrong today, you know. So, yeah. in other words, whether you know, sometimes I find it easier to to just grant a conservative uh, interpretation of Scripture and then question it, as mm, opposed to trying to make Scripture agree with me. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah, it, be totally honest with me. It's so hard to offend me, Jason. I'm going to tell you right now. Be totally honest. Do you think? Am I trying to make Scripture agree with me by by reading it that way? I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know you well enough to be able to answer that. But um, you know, I, I would just say take take something like um, sex outside of marriage. Forget homosexuality. Yeah. Let's talk about sex outside of marriage. Okay. I find it easier to say. Yeah, the Bible condemns sex outside of marriage, but it's wrong. Then I find that easier than to say, um, no, 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 the Bible is right, but the Bible doesn't condemn that. It takes more sort of hermeneutical gymnastics to do that second yeah. one than to just grant a relatively conservative reading of it and then and then challenge that. I see, I see, I see. I, yeah, and in my reading, and maybe this, maybe this is me making it conform to my own life and not wanting to change the way I live my life. But to me, I interpret that as saying, okay, yeah, hermeneutics within the time set, within the the cultural, you know, um, perspective of the time in which it was written. Um, you know, I don't think the Bible was well. That's a big. That's a whole other tangent. But I don't. I don't think that it stands up in every culture and every application. You know, I don't think that these words verbatim are meant to be writ- read in every single application of every culture across. You know, time. I think that there is a a a seed there. I think that there is a heart of the message there that may be an absolute truth. Very well, it may be that, but the actual specific uh, verbiage may not necessarily translate from culture to culture or time period to time period but as far as sex outside of marriage goes yeah it it complicates shit you know um you get emotionally attached to somebody and then you end up uh you know you end up forming emotional relationships and bonds that end up hurting you and that other person in the end so yeah maybe the safest thing to do is to 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 just be monogamous upon making that commitment of marriage and things like that and then uh, you know the, the homosexuality thing is a whole nother. I mean, uh, I, I'm bisexual, and so that for me is is, is a whole thing. But um, but I, I like Rob Bell talks a lot, of, and you know, of course, Jay Baker talks a lot about how uh, you know the and maybe once again, maybe this is just me trying to make it work for my own perspective. Maybe I'm wrong here, but it homosexuality was not a committed thing. It was it was a, an exclusively lustful. Engagement. It wasn't people committing their lives to each other. It was like there wasn't even Freudian con- the con- the Freudian concept of sexuality back then. It was seen as debaucherous and just as uh, lustful. There wasn't you know there weren't families adopting abandoned children you know in uh, in five A.D. you know trying to <laughs> trying to start a family. It was it was more of the Roman cultural idea of um uh, of a flesh you know a, a, a fleshly motivated kind of sexual encounter i guess yeah yeah i think that's probably true um 
you know, and, but my point is just that, and that's why I said, you know, let's, let's, you know, table homosexuality and talk about sex outside of marriage. And, yeah. and because, you know, the way I, the way I look at it is, is something like this, you know, why, yes, the Bible seems to confine sex to marriage, but why, mm, why yes, does it do that? Yes, okay. Yes. So like, are you saying that, um, you know, if, if I were to, if my partner and I were to go to Vegas and have an Elvis impersonator marry us at a drive through wedding chapel that, and I got that piece <laughs> of paper that he is authority, he has the authority to give me that piece of paper because he went on the internet and got ordained. Um, so that, that will somehow, uh, alter fundamentally God's perspective on my relationship with my girlfriend. Um, yes. I think that that is just preposterous and yes. any, yes. you know, any just level of scrutiny at all should, should say, yeah, that's, that's of course silly. Absolutely. So it's one of yeah. those things, you know, like what, yeah. that, that's sort of how I think biblical ethics, that's a, one of the ways you can approach biblical ethics is, is, is to say, why, why does it say that? Well, because yeah. it's trying to safeguard a, you know, a committed monogamous kind of relationship between two, between two people and, and marriage was the way that was done then. Well, great. Okay. Then I'd rather, yeah, I'd rather, you know, uh, affirm the, the, the underlying purpose behind the, the command as opposed to just taking the command as like, thus saith the Lord, this is true universally in all places and all times, you know, just, yeah. Across the board. Yeah. I totally agree. And I think that I believe both of these passages are in Luke. Um, I'm spacing out on the exact verses, but like the idea that to he who knows to do good and does not do it to him, it is sin. So if, if to you, you are in a monogamous relationship, but you don't have a fucking marriage certificate that says, you know, that, that is some man-made institution acknowledging the fact that you are quote unquote married, then I don't see any difference between a committed monogamous relationship in which that is the inference, that is the the pretense of you being together is to be monogamous, and, oh, we didn't get married by Elvis in, in Las Vegas, and so this is illegitimate. And at the same time, um, you know, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so I think that that speaks a lot to intent and to the idea that it's not a rule-based system uh, now that we are, you know, maybe maybe when, when humanity was a child, we needed the Ten Commandments. As a little kid, you need s- steadfast rules. Never, ever touch the stovetop. Never, ever, ever walk across the street. As adults, as teenagers, we know, okay, if the stovetop is, is not hot, then you can touch it. If you look both ways and there's no cars coming, you can cross the street. But when you're younger, you need Ten Commandments. You need steadfast rules and things like that. But once you understand nuance and you understand consequence, and you can own that as an adult, then I think that it kind of shifts the dynamic a little bit. And I think that that is where, that's how I can personally marry the Old Testament with the New Testament, is knowing that we've learned a lot since then, and and things are becoming, they're not changing, the rules aren't changing, but they're becoming clarified, and the heart of these rules is becoming the focus, I think. If that makes any, I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, it goes right along with what Paul says to the Galatians that, you know, Israel, God's people under Moses, you know, under the law during the old covenant, they were likened to a, a little child 
Yes. In, a, in a household who may be the heir, the child may be the heir of all things, but he, as long as he's a little kid, he's supervised by babysitters the same way a slave child is. Whereas the, with the coming of Christ, God's people move from being minors to being mature, and the Torah, the law of Moses, is yeah. replaced with the Holy Spirit, which, of course, I think um, you could, you know, reinforces exactly what you just said. That, um, you know, when you have, you know, if, if you're a, a full-grown adult with the Holy Spirit, you have the ability to kind of exercise discretion, make judgment calls, evaluate stuff, which you can't do when you're a young child under Moses, right? Exactly. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah, that's beautiful. Damn. I feel like <laughs> I wish we had more conflict between us. I wish we weren't like so much on the same page about everything because <laughs> I'm losing places to go here because I just feel like we're agreeing on everything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, hey, you like TV? You like movies? Let's, let's talk about that. Let's take a step back from all this fucking theology shit. Like, what's... Uh, I, let me tell you this. I just finished Westworld Season 1. I felt like it was the biggest metaphor for for Paradise Lost, for that interpretation of, you know, Milton's Paradise Lost, uh, wherein God is not necessarily a good guy, and and uh, who we call Satan uh, is more of, of, of the protagonist in that story. I, I, you've, you've seen all of Westworld, haven't you? I haven't watched the second season, and I'm not sure I'm, I'm, not sure I'm going to. We're on the to. same page. That's great. Yeah, I... I it was good. I, there were little things about season one that kind of bugged me. Like, like what? Well, just all the stuff when they're in the lab. Like, how do those guys get away with the kind of stuff they were doing without being caught? With cameras everywhere. Yeah, you'd think that. Yeah, you'd think that they, you know, they'd get caught. And then I've heard people complain about season two that there's just all this kind of jumping around, you know, the timeline to the point where it gets kind of confusing. I see. So that's kind of put me off. I'm sure I'll eventually watch it, but I'm not like, it's not like when the next season of Game of Thrones comes out, I'm just like, you know, can't wait. It, it's yes. not, Westworld wasn't like that. So I'll eventually probably watch season two, but I'm not in any kind of hurry. Okay, okay. How do you feel about, okay, let me give you, can I give you my theory on, um, and this is obvious, like I'm not saying that this is the writer's intentions of these characters, but this is how I interpreted it kind of from a, a biblical slash paradise lost kind of Miltonian uh, perspective. And let me know what you think about this. So I think that, what's his name, Robert, the the head honcho, the creator guy? I feel like he's God the Father, like the Old Testament God, and that um, Dolores is the Christ because she was created, she was a human, she was created um, by the by the Father, but then she's waking up to seeing that, wait a minute, all this Old Testament bullshit, all this Mosaic Law bullshit doesn't add up. And she's kind of waking up to it. And then I feel like uh, Arnold slash Bernard is Satan, the, the, the protagonist Satan. He's the one who God was like, you're my bearer of light. You're with me here. Um, I trust you. But then he wanted to give humans choice, free will. He wanted to let them eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God didn't like that. And so he, he stomped him out and, uh, and tried to, you know, he tried to, uh, extinguish him or, or remake him as, 
a, a pawn. And then Maeve, who, who thinks that she is... She believes in free will, but then it turns out that maybe free will is, is more of an illusion. But she's leading the rebellion, which may also be a little bit of a, a Lucifer nod in that she... She even says the phrase, we're going to sneak into hell and kill the gods. Um, that's my that's my quick rundown. It may be fucking absurd and you may have no idea where I'm coming from with this. No, it's interesting. But. It's interesting. Um, it kind of makes me want to go back and rewatch. If I do watch season two, I'm probably going to go back and rewatch season one first. Oh, for sure. That's, yeah. That's I will say this. The use of Radiohead's exit music for a film as the final Ugh. song at the finale Ugh. of season one was like one of the most brilliant things I've ever seen. Oh, my God. Tell me about it. Ugh. Yeah. I know that you're a big, a big music fan. What are you... Uh, it, I don't know if you do Spotify or, or Pandora, but if you did, what would be in your, in your most recent ten listens? What, what songs have you listened to most recently? Oh, okay. Well, I, I do use both Spotify and Pandora, mm-hmm. and I've got Spotify open on my desktop right now. What's um, here, baby? All right. Well, here's here's what I got a playlist that I've been listening to lately. Um, it's here's some of the bands in there. Let's see: Skeleton Hands, uh, New Canyons, Drab Majesty, Holy Graham, The Neighborhood. Cold Showers, that's a really cool band. If you like, um, sort of, they sort of sound like, uh, they're kind of influenced by like Bowie and, um, you know, that kind of like older sort of uh, a bit industrial kind of influence, but they're super Progressive, but like OG progressive kind of. Yeah, yeah. Um, And there's a band called Oh Boy Lamech. Which is just a band that has like five songs and then they don't, they cease to exist. Um, but they're awesome. Yeah. They're really good. Um, yeah. Um, so that's, that's some of the stuff I've been listening to lately. Very cool. Yeah. How how about, uh, any other like streaming service shows that you're into right now? I I, I know you're, you like Halt and Catch Fire. The reason that I watched Halt and Catch Fire was you and Christian just going on and on about it, and so I I, I had to get into it. But uh, is there anything else here more recently that you, that you've been watching? Yeah, well, um, Handmaid's Tale. You know, been watching Handmaid's oh, Tale. Um, I haven't watched it yet, man. I've so many. I have to now. Now that you've brought it up, like so many people who I respect have told me I have to watch it. So it's uh, you know it's it's based on a book that it was written in the eighties, which I've not read. But um, it's sort of eerily relevant, and that's not a good thing. But it's it's eerily relevant mm. to the culture we're living in now. But it's really great. Um, I think. I mean, I think the the best TV show in in history. I mean, I, I, I'm almost like I always used to say The Wire is the best TV show ever made, oh, and I, God. I still may Preach. stick to that. But I, I just rewatched all of Game of Thrones um, again. And I've read the books as well, but that show that show is that show gives the wire a run for its money as far as being the best TV sh- series ever made. Fucking a, so good. I'm on season six. I've been watching it with my with my little brother. Uh, you know, I, I live in Minnesota. He still lives uh, in the Midwest. Um, I was born and raised in the Bible Belt in, in Kentucky, and then my family moved to, to Kansas, so that's where he's at right now. But we Skype and like. 
do a screen share thing and we watch Game of Thrones together. And yeah, he's intimately acquainted with Song of Ice and Fire. He's read it. He listens to the audiobooks like on the fucking daily. And so he's always giving me insights into it. And uh, it's just, yeah, it's fucking incredible. I can't wait to, to catch up so I can watch season eight when it drops. Oh, man, I... I... It's it's and the next season is the final season, but it's so good. I know, dude. Did you know they're they're doing a prequel series? Yeah, I heard about that. Um, yeah, I'll be curious to see what they you know what aspect of the mythology they choose to kind of focus on. Yes. But I'll be I'll be watching for sure. I'm curious how much George R. R. Martin will be involved in that. Like, if it'll be like it seems it sounds to me like it's going to be like a Silmarillion. To Lord of the Rings type thing, to where it's giving you the history of it all before the narratives that we're familiar with. But yeah, I'm curious, like how much George R. R. Martin's going to be involved with that. I, I really don't know. I kind of want him to just hurry up and finish Winds of Winter. I mean, he's getting old, dude. He needs to hurry up and finish this series of books before he dies. Yeah, he's a listener to my podcast, so we're just George, George, get on it, finish it up, chop chop, chop chop. I lied. He's not. He doesn't know who I am. Anyway, hey, uh, would you want to do a shot with me on the air? Um, I don't have. What do I? I don't know what I have to. Um, do you want me to go downstairs to the my where my bar is and see if I got something yeah. I can do? Go for it, and I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll edit it out. Yeah. All right, hang on. Are you still there? Yes, sir. All right, I got a shot of. We drank this on Dr- Drunk X Pastors a few weeks ago. It's a someone sent us this um, rum that is coffee infused. Ooh, and it's delicious. Okay. Is it good? Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. I, I've got some Svedka vodka. Cheers! Cheers! Bottoms up. Yes, sir. Oh, and that's the first thing. Uh, I haven't had any food yet today, so that's... Uh... <laughs> that's breakfast. Yeah, seriously, pretty much. <laughs> Woo! Man. Well, do you have anything else you want to talk about? I'm, I'm about tapped out on, on the things that I had in mind. So Not at all, but we can always do this again. You know, if we, Once we figure out how to... Um, have have Christian on here as well. I, I think we could probably do that if we were he and I were not in the same location. But if we're both using the same soundboard, then it's like tricky for some reason. I see. Can I close in a prayer? Sure. I'm just joking. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I didn't think you were being serious, but I was like, well, but it, I don't know. Maybe maybe he's being serious. <laughs> Whatever, hey man. Whatever floats your boat. I'm glad that you went with it. <laughs> Oh, God. All right, man. I appreciate you, man. I love you, brother. And uh, I hope we talk soon. Yeah, for sure. Perfecto. All right, dude. All right, brother. Bye. A post-Christian production.